Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. COVID-19 is exacting a toll even from those who don't have the disease. It's clear that being cooped up amid tumbling economies is already seriously impacting people's mental health. Helpfully, lots of resources are being put together for those in need. And you'll have heard of Me Too, but what about Kutu? It's a movement in Japan to reform seriously sexist employer dress codes that insist on high heels or prohibit eyeglasses. The push has plenty of support, but not so far in the government. First up, though. Amid the chaos caused by COVID-19, some leaders see opportunity. Last week, in response to the coronavirus, the Hungarian parliament passed a law granting Prime Minister Viktor Orban the power to rule by decree, indefinitely. Extraordinary times might call for extraordinary measures. But to critics of Mr. Orban and his party, Fidesz, it's a power grab by a leader who has long displayed an authoritarian streak. The European Union should be no place for dictatorships. Over the years, Mr. Orban has drawn plenty of ire from Brussels. You, you want to continue the money of the European funds, the money of the European Union, but not the European values. That's not for you. But the bloc has so far struggled to rein him in, as he's chipped away at Hungary's democracy. This year marks his 10th as prime minister. And after a decade of democratic backsliding, this latest move looks like the coup de grace. Viktor Orban started out as a young liberal student hero of Hungary's 1989 transition from communism to democracy. But as he has matured as a politician over the last 30 years, and particularly in the last 10 years that he's been in power, he's become more and more of an authoritarian conservative. And at this point, he rules Hungary effectively as a dictator. Matt Steinglass is our Europe correspondent. On March 30th, the Hungarian parliament passed a law which effectively allows Orban to rule by decree. It also bars anyone from criticizing the government's response to the COVID-19 epidemic. In theory, the parliament can end this state of emergency, but there's no reason why it would, given that it's controlled by Mr. Orban's party. And all of this is being justified as a response to the epidemic. And so in that sense, it's Orban and his party acting much as it has over the past 10 years, seizing power whenever it sees an opportunity. Yeah, this is only a change of degree in terms of how much power Orban has over Hungarian society. Fidesz has a two-thirds majority in parliament, and Orban has effectively been able to do anything that he wants to in Hungary for certainly the last eight years of the 10 years that he's been in power. But giving him the ability to rule by decree makes things somewhat simpler. 
The main worrisome change is the prohibition on journalists spreading, quote, misinformation, unquote, about COVID-19. Opposition journalists are very worried that this is going to be used to punish anybody who criticizes the government's handling of the epidemic, and it carries a potential five-year jail sentence. And so let's wind back a bit. How does this fit into the way that the power structure has changed over Mr. Orban's leadership over the past 10 years? How has Hungary changed during that time? Ten years ago, when Viktor Orban and his Fidesz party won the elections in 2010, Hungary was basically a run-of-the-mill European democracy. But they used their two-thirds majority in parliament to override constitutional safeguards and change the constitution to give the government effectively power over the judiciary. And they've gradually asserted party control over all the independent institutions of Hungarian life. So the party controls the educational system, the party controls the judiciary, and it can effectively act as it wants to. The opposition is small and divided and hasn't really been able to offer much resistance. So part of what they've done is to channel government funds to cronies of Mr. Orban, who become fantastically rich. And the main thing that they've done is basically to entrench themselves in power so there's no real effective resistance to the control of the Fidesz party. And the opposition too small and weak to do anything about that. But what about public support? What do the Hungarian people think about this hollowing out of the state? Orban is quite popular. He's popular partly because he has exploited nationalistic feelings. The 2015 refugee crisis, for example, when lots of migrants were coming into Europe, was a godsend for Orban because he was the first leader in Europe to build fences to keep migrants out, and that enabled him to portray himself as a champion of Hungarian culture and Christian culture. He has portrayed all of the opposition to him as being a part of a foreign conspiracy controlled by George Soros, the Hungarian billionaire, and basically depicts anybody who's uh, trying to throw up opposition to him as a member of some kind of foreign cabal. And the economic record of his government has been fairly good. So Hungarians feel that their own pocketbooks are improving. But surely that sits uncomfortably with the EU, having this sort of illiberal streak, this authoritarian streak in an EU country. In theory, it shouldn't be possible to have a country in the EU that's effectively a dictatorship. But one of the issues with the way that countries gain accession to the EU is that nobody ever thought that anything like this was going to happen. So there aren't very effective measures for preventing a country from turning authoritarian once it's become a member of the EU. The EU has gradually, grudgingly responded to the shift towards authoritarianism in Hungary It's implemented what's called an Article 7 procedure, which is theoretically supposed to discipline the Hungarians and in some theoretical world could eventually lead to them losing their voting rights in the European Council. But that is almost impossible that that would ever happen, partly because such measures would have to be passed unanimously and the Hungarians have allies who would protect them. So at this stage, there have been very few steps taken to effectively discipline the Hungarians. In fact, even the parliamentary group that the Fidesz party belongs to in the European Parliament has not kicked it out of that grouping. It's the biggest, most powerful center-right grouping, and they suspended Fidesz last year after some particularly egregious behavior, but they won't expel them. But do you think that this latest power grab, this really sort of pure authoritarianism that comes with the ruling by decree, will that excite the EU to do anything more about it? Civil rights groups and critics of the Hungarian regime see this move as a final step towards dictatorship. But the European Commission has only issued a mild critique of what the Hungarians are doing. It's possible that they could punish Hungary by reducing or cutting off its funding under the next EU multi-year budget. That would be an extremely aggressive step. And the problem 
as it's been described to us by officials at the commission, is that the steps that the Hungarians have taken don't literally violate constitutional principles because parliament, in theory, has the ability to end the state of emergency. Parliament is never going to do that because it's controlled by Mr. Orban's party. But it means that there's no technical violation that the European Commission can use as an excuse to punish the Hungarians. But what about the bigger, longer-term picture? Do you think that Mr. Orban will continue to grab power, will consolidate it, will kind of sneak it past nervous EU types, or will something nip this in the bud? I can't really see any threat to Viktor Orban's power in Hungary. And he is increasingly confident that the anxieties of foreigners about the way that he runs the country are immaterial. He's very confident that the EU and foreign countries aren't going to levy any sanctions that will make a difference to him. So far, he's been right. But I mean, doesn't that kind of undermine the entire European project then if a member state can become this kind of dictatorship? One of the reasons why the EU is not responding more aggressively to what's happening in Hungary is that Hungary is a small country. And it's possible that if something like this were to take place in a larger EU country, it would encounter more resistance. It's also, Hungary is also the first country where this sort of development has taken place. So with the experience that they've gained in dealing with Hungary, it's conceivable that Europe might respond more aggressively to changes in other countries. But yes, it does fundamentally change the character of the EU that one of the member states has effectively become an autocracy and the organization doesn't seem to be able to do anything about it. Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. On this week's Checks and Balance podcast, our journalists look at how COVID-19 is affecting the road to power in America. The pandemic has disrupted election logistics, sparked a bitter fight in Wisconsin, and forced the most expensive political campaigns in history to rip up their plans. Yesterday, Democratic contender Bernie Sanders ripped up his. I wish I could give you better news, but I think you know the truth. And that is that we are now some 300 delegates behind Vice President Biden, and the path toward victory is virtually impossible. Checks and Balance will be out tomorrow. Find it every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's not only the physical safety of healthcare workers that's at risk during the COVID-19 crisis. There are also concerns over their mental health. From tomorrow in Britain, all medical staff will be given extra psychological support after warnings from the National Health Service that the crisis is likely to bring symptoms similar to shell shock. But amid lockdowns and layoffs, even those who aren't on the front line are at risk. Well, you know, we know that people are fundamentally sociable animals. Emma Hogan is The Economist's deputy briefings editor. You know, people respond to touch, they respond to social networks. We've seen that female baboons who have more grooming partners or, or friends exhibit lower levels of cortisol, uh, stress hormone. 
So put that sort of situation of isolation next to the fact that there's the fear of contagion, there's the fear of loved ones falling sick, and there's a huge uncertainty about every aspect of life right now. So the combination of those two things means that it is a traumatic event and it does have the potential to damage people's mental health. And I suppose even at this relatively early stage of things, the the effects of that can already be seen. Yes, precisely. I mean, we found through a poll in in Britain, a sort of Ipsos Mori poll, that people were already finding it difficult in the early stages of the lockdown to stay positive compared to how they felt beforehand. And so breaking that down by by age group, I mean, 67% of those between the age of 18 and 34, so that's people who are not of such high risk from the virus, they were finding it hard to remain upbeat compared to 54% of those between the ages of 55 and 75. So we've seen that this is affecting different parts of the population in different ways and at different times. And surely it's the people on the front line who are finding it the hardest, the, the emergency service workers. Exactly. And the people who are on the front line, uh, hospital workers, they are, they are potentially the most exposed to stress. But they also have the camaraderie that comes with you know, working with their colleagues. What you've got now you know, in the sort of population at large, you've got people who have lost their jobs, of which there are millions. And they've not just lost their livelihoods, but they've lost a social network there and a sense of a sense of belonging. And then you've got younger people who perhaps live alone, who are used to living alone because they can spend time with their friends. And instead now they are stuck either in house shares or in sort of a flat by themselves. And then combined with that, you also have elderly people who already are more likely to feel loneliness in studies and, and so on, which which have been linked to both declining physical and, and mental health. So this is going to affect people in so many different ways, people who are vulnerable, people who are you know, at risk of domestic violence, people who have addiction problems, but also people who before the outbreak were content with their lot are going to find it incredibly stressful in different ways. Well, I mean, we, we are continually told that the situation we find ourselves in now is, is unprecedented, certainly in, in terms of the scope of, uh, of lockdowns around the world. But have previous outbreaks or, or attempts to sort of sequester people uh, given us any, any history lessons here? Well, I mean, it is unprecedented. So, you know, we should take what previous pandemics or, or sort of moments of quarantine have said with, with that in mind. But The Lancet, a, a British medical journal, did a rapid review of studies which suggested that the impact of quarantines can be so severe as to result in a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. One example was a study from 2009, which looked at hospital employees in Beijing, who in 2003 were exposed to the SARS virus, which, like COVID-19, is caused by a coronavirus. The authors found, you know, three years later, having been quarantined was a predictor of post-traumatic stress symptoms. Similarly, another study from 2013 used self-reported data. So it compared PTSD symptoms in parents and children who had been quarantined during the SARS or the H1N1 outbreak in 2009 with those who had not. It found that the mean post-traumatic stress scores were four times higher in children who had been isolated. And among the parents who'd been quarantined, almost 30% reported symptoms serious enough to warrant a diagnosis of a trauma-related mental health disorder. But in comparison, those who were not put in isolation, the figure was 6%. 
I mean, these are pretty strong effects, seemingly just based on whether people had been isolated or not. I mean, what about people whose lives or, or lifestyles have them isolated kind of more normally? Well, I spoke with Cynthia Darin, a consultant in Australia who spent four years in Iraq you know, between 2006 and 2010 in military camps, which you know, from, from her description of it, they, they were sort of like prisons. You know, you couldn't leave them. There was very real fear of being killed outside of them. And basically, she said that many of her colleagues turned to alcohol to numb the boredom and the fear, which... We have seen already in Britain by increased alcohol sales and and elsewhere, people have spoken of empty whiskey aisles. But there are other ways of dealing with it as well. Astronauts who are sent out in space, they don't see people, they don't see their friends or family, and they experience many of the things I think people are going through now of loneliness, disturbed sleep, being, being cooped up. They suggest things like writing a journal, keeping a routine, getting outside, the latter of which was not possible for them and something that they very much missed. So the the parallels are not exact, but those are things which can teach us a bit about what's going on now. And what's your sense for how the uh, the medical community is, is dealing with that or, or, or trying to mitigate that? Well, I think there's a very real sense that the, the mental health of, of people under lockdown is a potential problem. It's already showing signs of, of being a problem in, in some places. And so, I mean, there, there have been already a couple of initiatives. So Public Health England released a set of guidelines on the mental health and well-being aspects of the coronavirus. In New York, uh, there's a free mental health hotline, which has been set up by Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, who said, you know, that people are struggling with the emotions as much as they're struggling with the economics. But I think that beyond these kind of macro policy solutions. There are also things that are happening on a local level. People are rediscovering that they live in a community in many areas. Mutual aid groups are coming together. You know, simply knowing that you have someone to rely on has been found in studies to reduce people's stress rates. So knowing that they can call on a neighbour can be helpful. And we've seen in many parts of Europe and elsewhere, you know, people are clapping their healthcare workers regularly. You know, in Britain, there was sort of people getting pots and pans out and, and, and sort of whacking them to you know, create a, a racket in honour of the NHS. So I think that those things can make people feel like they are coming together as part of a collective good. And there are also simple things like calling your family and friends and video calling them and, and seeing, seeing their face. It's not the same as being with them in person, but it... It will help people get through this. Emma, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. To follow all of The Economist's coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic and how it's swiftly reshaping the world, visit economist.com slash coronavirus. Last year, 32-year-old Ishikawa Yumi tweeted about her foot pain after a long day working in a funeral parlor wearing mandatory high heels. She wrote, why do we have to work while hurting our feet when men can wear flat shoes? Her tweet went viral, as these things often do, with similarly aggrieved Japanese women sharing their high heel horror stories. Now, Ms. Ishikawa has become the face of the Kutu campaign, which is hoping to change Japan's gender-skewed workplace dress codes. So Kutu means a few things. Miki Kobayashi writes for The Economist in Tokyo. It's a triple pun on Japanese words for shoes, kutsu, pain, kutsu, and of course, the Me Too movement. 
And, and what happened after Ms. Ishikawa's tweet went viral? So at first, Ms. Ishikawa was very surprised that so many women and men sympathized with her and that so many of them were going through the same thing. So she was encouraged to change the status quo and ended up gathering nearly 19,000 online signatures for a petition calling for a law to stop employers from forcing women to wear high heels. And that petition was submitted to the government in June of last year. Forcing women to, to wear high heels, though. I mean, what, what is the, the state of, of dress codes in Japan and, and how does it differ between men and women? So working in Japan requires women to follow a number of social etiquettes or the dress code. And one of them is wearing high heels to the office. According to a survey by Business Insider Japan, more than 60% of women have either been forced to wear heels at work or have witnessed colleagues being forced to do so. But you don't really need a survey to tell you that wearing heels is expected at many workplaces here. At Takashimaya, which is a popular chain of department stores here, female staff run around the shops in black 5 centimeter high pumps. That's a company rule. And even Inada Tomomi, who is a former defense minister, she apparently felt obliged to wear heels not only in the office, but also on the deck of an American aircraft carrier. And so what about the government's view on this? What, what has it done? What do you think it will do with Ms. Ishikawa's petition? So the government has so far done nothing. The former labor minister who received Ms. Ishikawa's petition last year, he has said that wearing heels at work is, quote, socially accepted and is also necessary and appropriate. The government also has not yet given Ms. Ishikawa an official response to the petition. So the, the government seems not too interested in this question. What about corporations themselves? Do they, do they feel a, a bit of pressure from their employees or from society more broadly? They are. Corporate Japan is slowly changing and is responding to the Kutub movement. So, for example, Japan Airlines, which is one of the two largest airline companies in Japan, They announced last month that their female flight attendants, they can ditch their heels for more comfortable footwear. And all three major mobile phone operators have relaxed their rules on heels so women can wear sneakers to work. And Miss Ishikawa is even collaborating with the shoe company to create a line of classy heelless shoes that could be worn at the workplace. (laughs) Never an opportunity wasted. Um, But but these onerous rules go beyond just shoes, though. Yeah. So, for example, some companies are prohibiting women from wearing glasses to work simply because they are unflattering. But for now, Miss Ishikawa wants more women to be able to wear flat shoes to work and for more stores to carry flats that could be worn at formal or business settings. But what she and the KUTUBE movement are going after is for more people to realize that certain dress codes, like forcing women to wear heels or banning them from wearing glasses at work, is gender discrimination. And Ms. Ishikawa is optimistic that things would change. In the beginning, she tells me that KUTU was just a fringe hashtag movement on Twitter. Now she says that they are a force that can't be ignored. One step at a time, as it were. Miki, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. 
Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.